Well, good morning. My name is Kyle. If we haven't met yet, I'm the lead pastor here at Generations Church, and I just want to welcome you to those of you in the room and those online. I do know that many people will watch us online before they'll ever show up here in person, and so I want to welcome the welcome you, and also say, hey, we hope to get to know you and your story, and we hope that those of you who are here also continue to grow in that connection, and that you grow in trust with us to be able to share your story with us, because we would love to hear that. Xavier and I have this tradition when new Marvel movies come out. We typically go see them in the theater, grab a big thing of popcorn and uh, in maybe a, a large icy and share that together. And some of the latest Marvel movies, they've grown increasingly cosmic. So talking about the, the larger universes, the larger worlds, and in fact, in a scene recently in one of the movies, there was this giant like gathering, this, this pantheon, where, where it was supposed to be all of these gods come together from all the different universes and the multiverse and, and, and all of the different earths and worlds, and they were coming together in this kind of arena and the assembly, and it was fascinating to see how mankind's creativity was evident in this type of movie. Because, see, I think oftentimes in our Western world, we limit or we think that the variety of gods only exist within the movies. But the gods we create for ourselves are not limited to those we find in movies. It's, not limit, it's only limited by our creativity. What do I mean by this? Some of you have been so fixated on something lately that if you could probably finish this sentence, life only has meaning if fill in the blank. Or my life would be so much better if finish that sentence. Or let's make it a little bit more personal. I only have value if you fixated on something. Maybe you think back and you think about mistakes you've made in your own life. And there's this wash of fear, of shame, and of guilt. And you think, oh, I'm just going to hide it. Oh, no, you made a mistake. What will my boss think? Or maybe you tell yourself, stupid, stupid, I shouldn't have done that. should have checked my work twice. I, I shouldn't have done it that way. Or maybe something goes, man, there I did it again. I just messed up again, just like my spouse says I do. We repeat these lies, and we believe something, and we say them to ourselves, and maybe even we say them to others because we have a picture of what the good life is. Some of you are probably like, what mistakes? I'm so ruthlessly thorough. Like, oh, I'm good. Like, just ask my spouse. I'm perfect. Chances are you forgot something at some point. And maybe even some of you who are very detailed, who are very thorough, who are very particular and, and, and very careful with your life. Even that is fragile. Because a new piece of information might enter the equation. And then you have to recalibrate how you're perceiving what you're 
maybe worldview is or, or, or type of action. You never have all of the information. There's something always that you hadn't accounted for. Or someone won't do it your way. Or maybe even there's that small stubbornness that you just can't wait to be like, I, I told you so. I just, I just knew it. Those are all forms where we've got a picture and we're trying to bring that to bear or we think it needs to be this way to call life good. We're all building an identity for ourselves. And like Jenga, slowly over time, links get taken out. And at some point, your sense of self comes tumbling down. Even biblical heroes had to face this truth. Abraham, a person of, of great faith, known for his faith, commended in the Bible for his faith. He didn't trust God all the way through because he and Sarah had a plan B. <laughs> Joseph, who's commended for his wisdom, worked his way up in, in Egypt, seen and respected, was able to plan out everything. Well, he wasn't wise enough to tell his brothers and his parents that they were eventually going to bow down to him. He was like, he, he, he told them, oh yeah, you're going to worship me, you bow down. He wasn't that smart. That's probably not something you should do is tell your older brothers and siblings and even your parents, yeah, you're going to bow down to me one day. Okay, let's a little tact there. Moses. There's a, there's a place in the scripture, it says he was the most humble man ever. Well, even in his journey, he hit a rock instead of speaking to it. And it interchanged God for himself. And what's amazing is in the midst of all this, as we try to create an identity for ourselves, as we even take strengths that we have and maybe build ourselves up and see ourselves as that peace, we have a gracious God who has a history of proactively giving us an identity that's not contingent upon us, but gifted by him. See, Israel was planning to settle into a new place. They've been on a journey. They've got all kinds of fears and failures and, and some baggage with them. And Moses lines them up on the precipice of entering into the promised land. And he gives them a series of speeches to prepare them well, to live well in this new place, the land of promise. And it was their second chance because they had been here once before. And now it's a new generation. And Moses is saying, I've got some words for you that you need to hear. And in the first part of Deuteronomy, he's recounted that story, building it up that they have been offered this second chance. But now he begins to give them some principles to live well in the world in which they are about to enter. And so he reminds them of the terms of the agreement that they made once before and will once again. That God had chosen this people, and they were to choose him as a nation, as a collective, as individual people, each and every day. And what God says here, and what he gives to Moses once before that Moses now recounts again, is that God's rescue should motivate their posture. The first statement 
of these words of life, of these ten commandments, or these ten phrases, is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. This statement is so important. Because none of the commandments, none of the following phrases, none of the ten principles after this statement make utter sense without this first statement. In fact, Jews reorient the commandments and say that it is this first half of this first statement, which is actually the first commandment. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. It asserts that God is giving these commandments. Not Moses, not another human being. God is the one who delivered the Israelites from slavery. No human being did this. Not Moses. The framework for life in the new land. Their morality does not emanate from human opinion. It emanates from a God who revealed himself within human history to them. He stepped into relationship and to their pain and to their suffering and freed them from slavery. Therefore, his way transcends human opinion. Notice that God is not saying in this introduction that he created the world. Based on the early pages of Genesis, it might make sense to say, I am the Lord your God who created the world and everything in it. That's pretty impressive. And would make sense. I created the world. Therefore, you better listen to me and do what I say. I made you shut up and listen. But that's not what God says here. Instead, God declares that he took the children out of slavery and into freedom. God is a rescuer from what binds our body, our minds, and our soul, and our spirit. He sees us precisely as we were and creates something, intervenes within him history and moves. And he did so for these people. See, God wants us to no longer be bound. See, what other gods, lesser gods do is they force us into a kind of slavery where we receive very little from them and are crushed under the weight of them because they're always changing their standards. We may receive that little dopamine hit from that good job, well done from a boss or maybe even from a spouse because you took the trash out without asking. But that chemical response never stays. We always need another hit of approval. We're always chasing that. I just need, they said good job once. I I need to hear it again. I must hear it again. We chase after these lesser gods, and they change their standard. And so what God wants most for us is to treat him and human beings from a place of transcendent and personal relationship with him. None of the other commandments contain what humans must do for God. See, pre-ten commandments, God intervening within human history and giving these to the Israelite nation Religions believe that people must do a lot for their God. They must feed them. They must sacrifice 
stuff to them. They've got to appease them in some way. And that, that target of what could do to, to make it rain, to make it, the sun go, to make your crops grow, to make your neighbor not hate you, to, to stay at peace with those around you, that, that target was always changing and up for debate. And you were never quite sure if it was actually going to work. But out of relationship with God, embodied in these statements, we are to respect and relish this relationship and care for God's creation, specifically other people. See, the relationship with God intervening within their life was to change their posture for how they interacted with God and the world. See, all other commandments commandments or ten words or principles are ultimately about responding to this relational connection the thing we can do for god air quotes i use that loosely is to treat god and his other children with the same initiating and persistent love he has for us see out of this relational rescue of slavery God gives the Israelites these 10 words of life. Not commandments to obey, not a target to hit, but principles of response because of his initiating love. His character has been revealed to them and will be revealed to the world. God's activity bestows their identity for they are a rescued people. They're not a more intelligent people. They're not more moral people. They're not people with necessarily more information or more advanced technology. No, they are first and foremost a rescue people. And it's from this relationship, from this saving, that God gives through Moses an identity of this people. For they are chosen. And that same thing is true for us, we, are, we receive an identity by, because of who he is and what he has done. See, our truest identity is an outcome of God's identity out of God's activity. That is who you are. It is not the sum total of your past activity, of someone else's activity in your life of labels maybe other people give you, your identity, your most true identity is something received, not something achieved. And so while life will generally go well for you to maybe try to put some of these principles into practice, if you've not been saved, if you've not been rescued, if you've not pointed to, surrendered to, and said, God, I, I have nowhere else to turn. I need you to rescue me. I need you to do a work in my life. Okay, I, I'm done trying in my way. I, I'm turning my life over to me. If you're not to that point, while life may go generally well for you if you'd apply these, they ultimately don't make rational sense. See, the problem with America, American society as we look around our world, is it's not that people don't keep the Ten Commandments. It's that they've never left Egypt. We expect people to live in response to a good and loving God, but they've never been freed from sin. They've never been freed from their bondage. It's unrealistic and unbiblical to expect those who have not been redeemed to live according to the principles and commitments of the rescued. 
See, it's from being rescued, you can now respond. You can now recognize who God is, recognize his activity, recognize that you are a loved child of God, and therefore respond. And that changes all of life because you're not seeking to do something for God. You're seeking to do something out of your relationship from that relationship with God. See, they have people, when you try to keep these laws based on your own strength, your own willpower, your own information, you won't have the motivation nor the indwelling spirit to empower you to do so. The redeemed must live according to the principles and commitments of the rescued. You have received something, therefore respond. And so as the Israelites move into a new land, out of this received identity, they need to be aware of something. There are going to be lesser gods, substitute gods, that try to distract them from living in response to the one true God. They will be tempted to substitute God. It's like this. Um, I, I think about growing up uh, in school. And you'd have a teacher, you'd listen and respect, but then when the substitute came in, <laughs> may, maybe you, so, some of you heathens are out there like me, like, you know, you try to get away with a little bit more. Ah, they may not know the rules, so like, I, I, I get it on the slide, you know. They don't have all the rules, they don't have all the information, so... Oh, okay, I'm glad to see I'm not alone here. Like, you know, when the substitute came in, you could push the boundaries or maybe push the limit. Or maybe it was, you know, it's the assistant coach running practice. Uh, he, they're the assistant. Like, they don't quite have the authority of the real coach. Maybe your boss is out on PTO, and so, you know, ah, standard changes a little bit. And what happens is we have substituted something in a place of authority. We, we see something as lesser, and therefore, different set of standards. Some of you won't stop and can't stop sinning because you're serving a substitute, because you're living life under the guise, under the leadership of a lesser God. You're letting something else play judge in your life. And it could be a myriad of things. It may even be yourself. It's not God that sits on the authority or judgment seat of your life. It is you. You determine right and wrong in your own mind. You maybe even allow others to determine right and wrong for your life. And what happens is when you serve that lesser authority, when you live out of response to a substitute, no wonder brokenness, sin, pollutes your life and the relationship you have in your life. Just because someone laughs doesn't make it right or kind, as I've been telling my kids lately. <laughs> because what happens is you're always chasing that laugh. Said another way, how we prove that we have no other gods before us is how we treat people. When we see these 10 words and responses, as we start to look at the response of our heart in our own lives and the actions that add up, are they in alignment with this? Not as a sense of to hit the target, but as a gauge to say, am I responding? Am I serving a lesser God? 
Have I substituted something else in its place? False gods have different moral standards than the true living God. They proclaim different judgments. They begin, and some of these false gods are good things that we make our ultimate things, where they are an end of themselves, meaning you will do whatever it, ha- whatever it takes to have this. You take a word or a phrase that you're probably familiar with, love. Let's imagine that you have a favorite pet who you love and a stranger. It's going to get graphic. They're both drowning. (laughs) The question is, do you save the pet whom you love or the stranger who you don't know? If love is an end of itself, then you will save your pet. But if you hold human life as a higher value than love, then you won't follow love. You'll probably save the stranger. What happens is there's a conflict in our lives. Every day you and I face choices. And we've got to choose, what do we put over something else? If you haven't caught on, that's one of the reasons why we we frame our values the way we do. It's to help us make daily choices as we live, work, and play. To, To practice putting the principles of God above maybe our own judgments. See, it doesn't just start and stop with love. It's maybe a person of influence in your life. You've you've got a picture of what it means to be successful. And so you'll easily lie on a coworker to bolster your own position with your boss because you feel a little bit better, because you needed that information. Maybe you even needed the raise. And the end result justifies the means. Let's take freedom. Since we're addressing being rescued, you may be free to do what you want, but true freedom comes from restraint and self-control. Bound by relationship with God, not merely what is legal or socially permissible. See, when freedom becomes an end of itself, you'll do anything to throw off any sort of restraint or self-control. But what we find is that God is a rescuer. And he invites us to be exclusive with him, which ultimately provides the most freedom that we can ever imagine. See, this is the narrative story about Israel. And they would be forced to make those daily choices to live in response to their rescue and resist lesser gods who would call them to manipulate their world because they were going to be pressured Now, we may be tempted to keep this commandment in order to earn favor from God. When we burst that bubble, it will not. As we go through this series together, if every week you find yourself going, okay, here's one more thing I got to do, then you've missed the point. This is not a scorecard mentality. This is not 10 check marks for you to gain. What my hope is that you encounter the true and living God that he has revealed himself, that he makes his rescue available to you. And in so doing, you simply respond. See, because of Jesus, we no longer just strive to keep this law. We're under grace. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul is talking to a group of churches 
or to, to this Roman church. And they're wrestling with this idea. Well, if these Ten Commandments, if this way of life was good for the Israelites, shouldn't we strive to do the same? And they say, no. Christ has fulfilled the law. That you should no longer consider yourselves slaves to both sin and the law, but a slave to Christ. Because out of your attachment, out of your relationship, out of your exclusivity to Christ, it will ultimately bring about life in your life. You will experience something where you're not weighted down by the expectations of others. You're not consumed by that next paycheck. You're not worried about the people outside of your realm or purview. Maybe, maybe your boss and you've got some workers. You're not worried about what they're doing on the job site because they know in, your, in their relationship to you, they trust you and will work well. But what happens is we start to doubt and lack trust and we start to do things where we simply don't respond to who God is and what he has done. And we start to revert to our own perspective, what we can see, the power we have, who we can control, the approval we get. And so we need to understand that God has chosen you in Christ. He has sent Jesus Amen. to rescue you from the bondage and the weight of these lesser gods. And when you say yes to him, you are now able to choose him again and again and feel empowered to make that choice daily. See, faith in Christ frees you from the bondage of false gods. Sin no longer has its power over you. And if you need some extra homework this week, <laughs> go read Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And this is what Paul is talking about. The freedom we have in Christ, the frustration when things don't quite work right, and then how life in the Spirit is actually keeps our eyes and our focus not on our failures or fear, but actually the fullness of Christ revealed and empowered by the Spirit. Amen. See, because we need this to actively subvert the other gods. We need what I like to call attachment activities. See, when a new baby is born, one of the most important things for that new baby that a parent can do is something called skin to skin. Where that, where that baby is, is naked and maybe the parent takes off their, their shirt and, and it's skin to skin contact. The point is to increase the bond, but also regulate temperature and heart rate. See, it's through attachment that a baby knows that they are safe, that they are secure. And what we have to do is we have to find those activities in our adult lives where we are skin to skin with God. Where, where we can grow our attachment with Him so that we don't feel threatened by lesser things. In the business world, this is akin to some, just some other language, inputs and outputs. You can't necessarily control your outputs. You can control. You do have influence over your input. See, God has made himself available to you in Christ. And in our adult life, we have a choice to embrace that contact. But sometimes we get so consumed by our outputs that we never think to review our inputs. And you can't always control what comes out, but you can control maybe what comes in. 
We do this around Generations Church in several ways. The first is through corporate storytelling. We just wrapped up a series last week where we took a look at three church practices, uh, communion, baptism, and generosity. Used correctly, these are attachment builders. They reorient us to a God who intervenes, who steps into the world and rescues and saves. This is also why we sing. It's why I teach through sections of the Bible. It's why we have people serve in different ways and why we try to invite people to share their transition from slaves of sin to freedom in Christ. And the subtle difference is being present because it will, we don't do these things to earn brownie points. We don't do these things to check the scorecard with God. But we do it in such a way that it increases our attachment to him who he has revealed himself to be. And so we do that corporately together when we gather, which is why we say, like, it is important to connect with others in the presence of God, to speak, to share, to sing, to move. But you also need that daily skin-to-skin time. And sometimes we can create like a list of things or actions that we need to do. I'm not necessarily going to give you that today, but, but more so a refrain. Because when those moments of choice when you're faced and you're evaluating your response, we need a way to reorient where is my attachment right now? What? am I most attached to? So let me give you something that's not original to me, but I think is very helpful. It's called the four G's. God is great, so I do not have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere for our satisfaction. And God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves to God, to ourselves, or to others. See, in our daily choices, you see that a response comes out of a relationship with God. Who God is and what he has done can bring about change, can bring about himself within the world. So God is great, so we don't have to be in control. What happens when you don't truly trust God's sovereign control? You typically try to Take control for yourselves. Some of y'all are control freaks. I'm not throwing stones. I, I get it. I just talked about controlling the inputs versus the outputs. See, it slips into the type of language we use and even the metaphors. Why? Because we like to know. We like to ensure. And so what happens is you might try to take control for yourself in harmful ways through manipulation or domination. You might wear yourself out with busyness or frustration. You might make your security and wealth a bigger priority than God's kingdom. Or you might worry. You might become preoccupied with bills and money becomes our main obsession. All because we don't believe our Father knows what we need. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. But God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. The approval I create or try to manufacture or the rejection I fear are making people big and God small. Our culture tries to overcome this problem by finding ways to bolster self-esteem, but it actually compounds the problem. We become dependent on whatever or whoever will boost our self-esteem. 
In reality, low self-esteem is thwarted pride. We don't have the status we think we deserve. We elevate desires that are often good in themselves, desire for love, affirmation, and respect to the level of needs without which we think we cannot be whole. I only have value if. We talk of needing the approval or acceptance of others, but our true need is to glorify God and love people. Let him be the most weighty thing in our lives. Let his love be the most consuming thing in our life that brings freedom. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere for our satisfaction, comfort, or pleasure. One of our problems is that we think in only of moments. In the moment, we think the pleasures of sin are real and the joy of God is insubstantial or distant. But in truth, it's the other way around. Every joy we experience is but a shadow of the source of all joy, which is God. Marriage, for example, is a reflection of the joy of union with God. Adultery is a distorted reflection. We'll get to that as we talk about those principles later on. If you even idolize marriage or commit adultery, then you've settled for less than living water. Sin is like the distorted reflection of a beautiful sunset that shifts with every movement of the breeze across the water. God is the sun in itself and all its beauty and glory and energy. C.S. Lewis says this, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but I more often find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It's the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want. You have a desire to find peace and rest. Stop substituting it for something lesser. Feast on the all-nourishing love of God. Stop settling for junk food. God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves to God, to ourselves, or to others. Richard Loveless claims the main reasons Christian do not change is a failure to really grasp God's grace. Christians are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Christ apart from their present spiritual achievements and are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to the legal pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. Maybe you've got a restless anger just beneath the surface, always ready to pop off. Maybe you're walking through life and there's, you're, you're doing things because you've been told that you should or you ought or you're supposed to, and the joy has gone. Or maybe you have that anxious performance. Did I do enough? Did I get it right? Or maybe you've even got some proud comparison. At least I'm not them. At least I'm a little bit better. But here's what we begin to recognize with who God is. That he is good, that he is great, he is glorious, and he is gracious. Let us not fall short of the grace of God. Let us recognize that we did not rescue ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. It is he who intervenes within history. And some of you who have felt and experienced that, Sundays when we gather is just a reaffirmation of that. 
God has rescued me, and I will live out of that rescue. And so when I use these truths, it helps me live that out well. For some of you, you've been settling for lesser gods. The last thing I want to do is sit here and tell you that you should stop, knock it off, or hit this standard. Because I also know, in my own heart, I can't. Which is why I need Jesus. It's why each and every day, I have to say yes to him. And remember and reflect on who he is. So if you've never done that, start today. It is never too late. It is never too late. Start today and start experiencing the freedom from the things that keep you in captivity, from the things that keep you in slavery, from the lesser gods, whatever they may be. I'm going to pray and the band's going to come forward and we're going to sing and we'll respond together however the Lord may lead you. Let me pray for us and then I'll, I'll give us some ways that we might respond together. God, you are good. I declare that right now. And it's not because I think so, but it's because you have revealed yourself so in Jesus. You didn't stay at a distance. You showed up in this world. Right now, wherever we're at, may we be people who simply respond to that news. Be grateful be joyful and humble ourselves and just be grateful for your love. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.